When you think of Texas, you think of cowboys. It was about the desert, in a way. It was about, you know, cattle. And I think that that's the kind of predominant image that people have of the place, when in fact, the southern part of Texas is incredibly important to the formation of the state and to the culture of the state today. Texas was a slave society. Historian Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed is a Texas native. In her book, On Juneteenth, she questions the dominant caricatures and events that we associate with Texas, challenging readers to ask which ones are missing and why. While it is short and easy to read, On Juneteenth left me acutely aware of the many illusions I have about the Lone Star State. Why more Western than Deep South? And this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we bring you conversations and stories that explore how beliefs shape how we see and engage in our world. The story of Juneteenth is not one I learned when I was in high school back in the 80s. And I know I'm not alone. The story of federal troops riding into Galveston, Texas, to read the order declaring that enslaved people must be freed. And I know I am not alone in learning that story much, much later. Last year, the Gallup organization found that 40% of Americans knew nothing or very little about the significance of the day. But that's starting to change. In recent years, the national conversation about the history of slavery, race, and the structures that followed have more asking questions and searching for answers. That might explain why for the last three weeks, as we approach the second anniversary of the federal holiday, On Juneteenth is back on the New York Times bestseller list. Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed is a historian who challenges readers to interrogate their ideas about the myths we may hold about our culture and our country. She's a historian who is comfortable having conversations about uncomfortable things. And as the first African-American recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for History, she has become one of the most authoritative voices on race and history in America. This week, we begin revisiting our conversation from shortly after her book release in 2021, in which I ask her to talk about the departure that is happening in On Juneteenth, one in which she introduces two very different narratives, history and events, along with her own lived experience. This is not typically what I do. I'm more detached in my other writings of history. I'm outside of the story in a way. 
I might talk about myself in the introduction, but once I get into the story, to the history, I, I move away from it as much as I can. But I also thought that this would be a way of reaching a larger audience to talk not just to adults, but I really want this to be the kind of book that teenagers, young people could pick up and perhaps identify with a narrator who is being open about herself and her, her life and how, you know, to some degree, we're all a part of history. We could all tell the histories of our times by talking about things that happened in our lives. And so I wanted it to be accessible to lots of people. And I know memoir, I have to confess, has not been, you know, one of my favorite genres. <laughs> uh, but I, yet here we are. Yeah, but here we are. Exactly. And I, I try to deal with some of the problems I have with the form by talking about myself as little as possible. I mean, I mentioned my mother and father's names yeah. and a handful of other people. But I thought that the more I went into like a family genealogy and family tree and talking to everybody, then it would become more memoir than history. And I wanted a particular balance. And I thought that by being present, but not too present, uh, would help me maintain that, that balance between mm. memoir and actual history. As a historian, do you feel that there's a pressure to remove the potential subjectivity that a person brings when they identify with the subject that they're teaching or talking about? Well, yeah, I think we can't be totally objective. We, we all know you can't have total objectivity, but you should not be sub substituting your desires and your wishes um, and, and placing them on the people you're writing about, mm -hmm. on the circumstances you're writing about. Yeah, so th that's definitely there. When you're writing a memoir and you, you, the parts that are about you, these are my impressions, you know, and, and they can't be wrong in that sense. I mean, I can be wrong about factual things, but when I'm talking about my feelings, you know, how my experiences, how they affected me, there's, there's some freedom in that, too, that you don't have to endnote that. As a professor, as a woman, as an African-American, do you find history presented as objective that, in fact, is more subjective or selective in the narratives that are included? Well, yes, uh, I, I have seen that. That's what my first book really is about. Mm. Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, an American controversy. It was going through and seeing the way historians who were writing about the story of Jefferson and Hemings had preferences about the answer to that question, whether or not they had children. And it led them to ignore evidence, to accept evidence that was less than supportable coming into the matter when you're dealing with a topic that was very touchy for people and it meant a lot to folks. I mean, that's why history is an art. It's not a science. There's no magic formula. And sometimes you, you hit the right balance and sometimes you tip over, but it's the, it's the attempt and the good faith attempt that I think that people, people respond to. When you encounter someone who says, explain Texas to me, <laughs> what do you say? Well, what I think it's really important for people to understand is that Texas is part of the Southwest. And the emphasis 
has been on the Western part of it. When you think of Texas, you think of cowboys. I did a language study program in France when I was in college. I lived with a family and they knew I was from Texas and they had an understanding about what Texas was about. It was about the desert in a way. It was about, you know, cattle. And I think that that's the kind of predominant image that people have of the place when in fact, the Southern part of Texas is incredibly important to the formation of the state and to the culture of the state today. Texas was a slave society. Stephen F. Austin, from the very beginning, understood that slavery was going to be critical to the enterprise because the people he was bringing over from Georgia, Alabama, and the other states came with the expectation that their property rights in enslaved people would be protected. And Austin says, if people came to Texas without the institution of slavery, they could expect to be poor for a very long time because, you know, the, it was backbreaking work in felling trees and turning East Texas into a part of the cotton empire, which is what they wanted to do. So most people, as a matter of fact, have lived in the eastern part of Texas, which is the Old South. It's very much like the Old South. And so I would tell people that a lot of the things that are coming out of Texas, these are racial questions that grow out of the racial hierarchy that was created by the institution of slavery. And that continued even after slavery was ended, even after Juneteenth, 1865, when slavery uh, ended in Texas, the question of Black citizenship and Black voting was controversial among many whites and has been something that, has, that they've been fighting uh, since that time period. And it's interesting that here we are dealing with the same kind of issues. Once you understand that this is not about cowboys, and oil men, as exemplified in the movie Giant, which I'm sure many people have heard of if they haven't seen. It tells a narrative about the, in the beginning, Texas was a place of the cattle rancher and cattlemen and cowboys. And then uh, they were challenged by the oil men, the people who struck oil. And then the two of them come together when oil is discovered on the land of the cattle ranchers. So they become one society, but they leave out the plantation owner. A land of infinite variety and violent contrasts. A land where today's ranch hand can become tomorrow's multimillionaire. They leave out the kind of people who came over with Stephen F. Austin and created Texas as part of a cotton empire, growing cotton and sugar cane and other crops. My ancestors on both sides of my family were brought from other parts of the Deep South into Texas. My mother's family on one side, I can trace back to the 1820s in Texas, before Texas is a republic, and certainly before it becomes a state. And my father's side, at least the 1860s. And their ancestors came from these other deep Southern places uh, to you know, recreate the slave society there. 
it's really important for people to understand that because you understand the racial mores and the political life of the place. You describe in the book the events that led up to Juneteenth, but you actually spend a little bit more time, at least in my read, on the way that the society and the culture used extrajudicial means and other mechanisms to keep that hierarchy in place. And you describe the role that people play who aren't necessarily named, like judges and lawyers and um, and school teachers. There are different roles that people play in reinforcing and supporting the social mores that are an extension of that racial hierarchy. When you look at the events around Juneteenth celebration, do you feel like they told a full story of what Juneteenth means and and what happens even after you have a legal proclamation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Black Texans understand this very well because we have been celebrating this holiday since 1866. The first anniversary after 1865, you know, kicked off these celebrations that have gone on and on. And they, they're typically, when you have them in public places, there are speeches that are given, there's music and so forth. There's an educational component to it. And I think Black Texans understand that even though there was great joy at hearing the news that enslaved people would no longer be in slavery, would never be treated as property in the way they were before. They knew they were in for a struggle. (laughs) They were amidst a group of people who were still very hostile to them and were hostile to the idea of incorporating them into the society on an equal basis. I've used the phrase hope amid hostility that just because chattel slavery ended, it did not end the racial hierarchy. The culture of the place, the culture of, of education, of voting, of social life, all of those kinds of things were still geared towards maintaining this hierarchy. And it's been a fight ever since then. So it was, it's a hopeful story in a lots of ways, but I'm hoping that people will, as the years go on, have more of an opportunity to reflect on the ways in which it was still going to be an amazing struggle, even after the end of slavery. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. When we come back from the break, my conversation with Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed continues. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian. If you missed any portion of the conversation, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. And you can also take the show on the go. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Just search Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, my conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed. Her latest book on Juneteenth is back on the New York Times bestseller list and just in time for the federal holiday, which will be observed this year on June 20th. Now, before the break, she talked about the struggles that began after the federal order declaring that the Civil War was over and that enslaved people were to be freed. Now we turn our attention to the present, how teaching and just talking about the events like Juneteenth have become so controversial. Let's get back to the conversation. There are growing efforts to update social studies and U.S. history books to more accurately reflect the events that surrounded chattel slavery, Reconstruction, and the era of Jim and Jane Crow in the United States. And that's been accompanied by a growing number of attacks, specifically on social studies and U.S. history teachers. How do you respond? Well, you know, I think there's a lot there's a lot going on with this. There's a concern that when you talk about what actually happened, that young people will feel bad about it. <laughs> and, you know, they should. <laughs> you know, it's impossible to read stories about people who had their families taken from them, you know, mothers separated from children and husbands separated from wives. It was a, it was a tragic situation, but it happened. And you have to talk about what happened in the past. History is not just the fun things that happened or the good things that happened. And that has to be put forth. So I think that there's a concern about a notion that this will make people unpatriotic. The feelings of white children are, you know, a paramount here saying that, you know, we don't want them to feel bad about things that their great great grandparents may have done. 
Well, you know, I, I don't know what to say about that because those things happen <laughs> and you have to talk about them. And it's pretty much saying as well that the feelings of black children don't matter. Mm. So that if you're a black child and you know that your ancestors were enslaved, you're not supposed to talk about that because you will make your white classmates feel bad. Um, that's that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, that doesn't that doesn't make sense. If, if things happen, you have to talk about them, talk about them in an age appropriate way. I mean, as we do everything the way we present matters to children, but they have to be discussed. There are people who don't believe or suggest that the situation that African-Americans are in, the sort of inequality that exists, that this is all our own making. And if you talk about the past and you talk about the ways in which society organized to stop Blacks from advancing, it supports the idea that, you know, we've been up against it, that we've been fighting against. We, we're not, it's not a level playing field. That abstract notion that there are social constructions is something a lot of people are struggling to understand. And if that is, in fact, the case, what does it mean about how we go forward? Yeah, well, I mean, individual character, but I think it's a bit more than that with African-American people. It's, a, it's an indictment of African-American culture, that it is something wrong with us as a people that, that explains why we haven't done things. You know, people build up Greenwood, a, a nice uh, town mm. uh, with doctors and lawyers. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody allegedly does something wrong and, and there's no real evidence that he does anything wrong, people use that as an excuse to burn it down. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're, like you're referring to the Tulsa race. Tulsa, yeah. The Tulsa mm-hmm. thing. And things like that have happened, you know, across the South. Not, Tulsa was just one uh, example of that kind of thing. Yes, but you're right. There's this notion that it's about individual merit or the merit of a race of people and that African-Americans are an inferior race. And what has happened here is that through no fault of whites, whites have not done anything to blacks. It's just their own uh, laziness that's caused the problem. But if you talk about history and you talk about segregation, you talk about lynching, all of those kinds of things, you understand that there was a concerted effort, in fact, to keep African-American people down. Where does religion come into the story? Well, um, I suppose it comes into the story among African-Americans because many Black people, most Black people have used religion as a coping mechanism for them during slavery and after slavery as a way of maintaining a sense of faith that things would get better. So I think people in the, in the black community, many of them have been buoyed by their religious beliefs uh, from the very, very beginning. And certainly religious figures have been more traditionally the leaders in African-American communities. You describe Texas as a promised land to Stephen Austin using almost biblical language. And I'm struck by how the language of liberation and freedom was understood by two different communities in very different ways. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was, there was a black church and there was a white church. And in the white church, it was Eventually, uh, it wasn't always this way, but certainly the pro-slavery ideology in the South was very much tied to 
uh, religion. I, I remember going through a diary of one of Thomas Jefferson's grandsons who's going through the Bible and finding references to slavery as a way of justifying the existence of, uh, of the institution of slavery. Now, that's something Jefferson would never, never have done uh, in that generation of people. But certainly by the, the time that we're talking about with Juneteenth, these people are the heirs of the Second Great Awakening. And in the South, that tied very much into pro-slavery ideology. And of course, in the North, they went the opposite way. White abolitionists saw in Christianity uh, a call for abolition, the liberation of African-American people. So a lot of it seems to be people using religion as, as it happens to suit their, their particular, maybe earthly <laughs> desires, uh, uh, answers to things, uh, using religion to, to buttress their views about stuff. So all these people are claiming from the same Bible um, claiming answers about the the nature of or the the rightness or wrongness of slavery and coming to different conclusions about it. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard. She's an award-winning author of several books, including The Hemings of Monticello, An American Family, for which she earned a Pulitzer Prize in History and the National Book Award. She is also the past president of the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic. She is the current president of the Ames Foundation and, over her career, has received many honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in the Humanities, a MacArthur Fellowship, the National Humanities Medal, and the National Book Award. Coming up after the break... Christian nationalists, by a large margin, said the Second Amendment is the most important amendment to the United States Constitution. Not the which, First which, Amendment. Not the First Not the First Amendment, which also guarantees them freedom of speech and freedom of religion. That's Ryan Burge, a political science professor. We're going to be talking about the numbers, attitudes about guns by religious groups, and more. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan, and we'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We turn now to a question my next guest spends a lot of time thinking about and researching. How does one's faith, identity, and beliefs shape attitudes about guns in America? Dr. Ryan Burge is an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. His academic focus is the interaction of religiosity and political behavior in American politics. But before we dive into who owns guns and what we can learn from the numbers, he cautions that when it comes to hot-button issues with strong cultural beliefs, getting to the truth can be hard. There's a lot of Americans who own guns, but would not be willing to click that box on a survey that I own a gun. 
because they're maybe worried the government's trying to track them or they just don't want anyone to know they have a gun or they're sort of embarrassed by having a gun or or whatever it is. So anytime we, we do polling around something like gun ownership, you always have to put like a real fuzzy margin of error on each side that the share of Americans who own guns is probably underreported on mm. surveys. And but we don't really know how to fix that because we don't track gun ownership from the federal level. If you buy a gun, the government usually doesn't know that. They can't track individual gun sales. We actually have no idea how many guns there are in America right now, and we'll probably never know how many guns there are in America right now. So everything we have here is sort of like a fuzzy picture of what's actually happening. But I think the one thing that people don't realize is the majority of Americans don't own guns. I think that's something that we all need to come to a reckoning with is at least even amongst white evangelicals, right, who are probably the most right wing of all religious groups in America, somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of white evangelicals personally own a gun. And then another 10 or 12 percent say someone in their household owns a gun. So it's very likely that 45, 50 percent of white evangelical households in America don't own a gun. So. The problem is, though, there's this idea in economics called the Pareto principle, which is like 20% of your customers bring 80% of your profits. In America, it's 20% of the gun owners own 80% of the guns. Okay, I want to pause there. I want to pause there and just hear that again. You just said 20% of America owns 80% of the guns. It's actually really hard to know that stat's true or not. But okay. if you look at different data sets, you see crazy ideas like 3% of Americans own 60% of guns. There's a study out of Harvard in 2016 that found 3% of American adults own half the nation's firearms. We can fudge the numbers all you want, but the data points to a very clear conclusion that a very small percentage of Americans owns a majority of guns in this country. So it's not like every house owns one gun. It's like one house out of 10 owns 20 guns. Mm. So it's it's a highly concentrated group of Americans who are very obsessed and interested in guns and own lots and lots of them. You go to the next house, no guns. Next house, no guns. Next house, maybe one gun. So it's not distributed evenly across the American population. So when you take that fact into consideration and then you overlay religious identity in your graph that you posted on Twitter that's been referred to in a couple of articles that are out there, this graph that I'm looking at, it shows that you have by religious affiliation or identity And at the top of that is white evangelical at 33%. What is that based on? The survey question basically says, do you personally own a gun or not? And then, you know, I break you down based on what kind of religious tradition you affiliate with, right? So if you're evangelical, if you're Southern Baptist, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, things like that. You know, what's really interesting about that graph, what a lot of people don't point out to, it's basically like an overlay of like what percentage of your religious tradition are Republicans, like, you know, who's at the top? White evangelicals and Mormons, yeah. right? Two very Republican groups. And who's at the bottom? Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, you know, very left-leaning religious groups. Yeah, non- so, non-white so, Catholics, black Protestants. I mean, yes. so if you were to take this graph of mm. gun ownership and mm. overlay it with religion and political identification, yeah, what that shows is that partisan... And religious identity can be somewhat indicators of how likely it is that you own a firearm. For a long time in political science, we thought that religion was the first lens and politics was the second lens, right? So we look at politics through a theological worldview. But over the last like five or 10 years in political science, we've sort of had like a revolution where we've decided now that we now choose our church 
based on our politics. So politics is now framing and coloring and shaping everything we say, everything we do, all the media we consume, and the pew that we sit in or don't sit in on an average weekend is directly related to our political affiliation because the nuns are less religious, but they're becoming more progressive politically every year. And evangelicals are moving to the right every year. So we're seeing this like growing divide, this God gap or this pew gap, as they call it, is really driving this country. And it's not based on religion. It's based on political partisanship because it's really hard in America, especially if you're white, to be a liberal Christian in this country. There's not a lot of space for you anymore, and those spaces are getting smaller and closing every year. And so bring that back to guns for a moment and gun activism. If I connect the dots of what you're saying, you're saying that in the the mainline voices here are not going to have the same level of influence in part because they don't have the numbers. In America today – For every one mainline Protestant, there's probably two and a half evangelicals, and that gap's getting larger and larger. The problem is, though, that evangelicalism has become a political monoculture. And so what happens in a monoculture is what's called the spiral of silence, which is this idea of if you think you're an outsider, your voice is an outsider, your opinion is not in the mainstream, you will just shut up and be silent because you don't want to be ridiculed or mocked or excluded from the group. And on guns, if you're in a church where 75, 80% of people voted for Donald Trump, you know where they are on guns. So you can't have a healthy, productive debate on guns because no one's willing to raise their hand and say, I think we should ban assault rifles in this country because that will probably get you excluded from the group. And so what you get is just a reinforcement and echo chamber of just these predominant voices saying Second Amendment rights are the most important rights in America. They're given to us by God. And so you don't see any healthy debate in churches and religious organizations that have all one political persuasion. So you can't have a debate about guns, which, by the way, most religions consider guns to be a second-order issue. Like, the, What, what the, do you mean by scripture- that, a second-order issue? What is that? Yeah, so a second order issue is one where evangelicals have traditionally said the Bible is silent on or speaks very little about. So things like immigration, taxation, um, government regulation, you know, social service programs, or guns. Um, you know, most evangelicals say the Bible doesn't speak directly to those issues, so they're sort of more interpretable by sources outside the Bible. So you can read passages, for instance, in the scriptures where in the Old Testament, God is very vengeful and very violent and very angry. Then you can read past the New Testament where Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. We're not going to fight this battle. So there's not a clear directive in the scriptures that say how a Christian, an evangelical, should think about the issue of guns and gun regulation. So that's an issue where the church can talk about how the scriptures talk about these issues and really debate and go back and forth. Instead, you don't get that because politics becomes the thing that guides all those choices. And in politics, guns is a first-order issue if you're a Republican, right? You are pro-Second Amendment. You are um, anti-restrictions in any way. There's this idea that like our Second Amendment rights are given to us not by government but by God. There's something called the no-compromise gun movement in the United States. When you say there's a no-compromise movement out there, I want to know what that is and who's behind it. So the no compromise movement thinks the NRA is too soft on guns. Um, that's that's really their – they hate the NRA. They the NRA is too liberal on the issue of guns. When they say no compromise, their rallying cry is the Second Amendment is not given to us by the United States government. It's given to us by God. Like it is our God-given right to own guns, keep guns, and have zero restrictions on guns in this country. And it's really a couple of social media entrepreneurs – who use Facebook primarily to go live and tell their followers. And by the way, they, they're, they're state-level groups. And many of these state-level groups have 100,000 or 200,000 followers 
on Facebook. And their entire message is there can be absolutely no compromise on guns. So what they do is they agitate in such a way that they will show up at the state capitol. It's the no compromise people who are the loudest and the most consistent on the issue of guns. Moderates don't march. They don't get involved in these debates, and they're not being activated by faith groups on these issues. And these no compromise groups will actually try to primary out Republicans who are not conservative enough on guns and replace them with a no compromise gun control candidate. It sounds like this organization has an infrastructure that allows for sustained pressure, sustained messaging. And that's the key thing is whenever something like Uvalde happens, they actually get louder, right? They don't let the other side push the narrative of we need gun control because of Uvalde. They say, no, 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 we need more guns because of Uvalde, right? You see guys like Ted Cruz say the solution is having one door into a school. The solution is not getting rid of guns or passing red flag laws. That messaging largely comes from the no compromise folks because they don't want to cede any territory at all to anyone who wants to try to control guns in this country. So they're going to continue to message and say they will never admit that guns are the problem because they really don't believe that guns are the problem. They believe it's something else in society is the problem. How much influence do you see or, or crossover do you see with religious identity when you look at that movement? So There's a linkage between this concept called Christian nationalism, and Christian nationalism is this idea that America is a Christian country. It was founded on Christian principles, and those principles should be sustained. There's a significant number of Americans, probably 20, 25% of Americans who are Christian nationalists, and we see a very strong linkage between Christian nationalism and pro-Second Amendment views, right? Because it's all kind of linked with this idea of like, the government doesn't give you rights, you give yourself rights. God gives you these rights, and God gives you the right to guns. So what we're seeing is that kind of rhetoric is sort of like leaking into mainstream evangelicalism more and more. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really kind of shaping the debate more than anything else is like this Christian nationalism. And the other thing is social media amplifies these kind of people, these fringe voices when it comes to things like guns. So I think we're seeing social media have a huge impact. And I actually think religious leaders are having a less impact. They're less impactful in American society today than at any point, at least the last 50 years, because social media can give everyone a megaphone even if you don't have training or qualifications or background, if you we like what you say and it's crazy, we're going to amplify that. And that's what social media does. You mentioned that there's this theological idea that the right is not derived from the Constitution, but it is derived from God. Is there any data that could give us some sense of how many Americans actually believe that? And the reason I ask is I know that Christianity is not the only religious tradition that may have, for example, um, a theology of just war or self-defense in which violence at times is justified morally or ethically. So Sam Perry did a survey where they asked people, which of the amendments to the Constitution is the most important amendment to the Constitution? And Christian nationalists, by a large margin, said the Second Amendment is the most important amendment to the United States Constitution. Not the which, First which, Amendment. Not the First not Amendment. The fir- not the First Amendment, which also guarantees them freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Right. <laughs> so it goes to show you like how they see these issues. It's like the freedom to buy a gun and own a gun is more important to them. Because a lot of those people believe, by the way, if you take my guns, it's because you're trying to take my liberty. You're trying to take my First Amendment rights by taking my guns away. Like That's the keystone on which everything else sits. So if you erode that keystone, then you can take away my right to free speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of protest and freedom of religion because I can't fight back because I don't have guns. So you do see a strong linkage between Christian nationalism and this idea that Second Amendment is really given to them by God. 
And when you talk about and look at the numbers on Christian nationalism, Mm -hmm. you talked about 33% of those who own a gun identify as white evangelical. What's the religious identification of those who align with or hold um, an ideological belief that would be defined as Christian nationalism? So interestingly enough, um, people think that Christian nationalists are like high attending, you know, let's say Protestant and Catholics. Um, there's this interesting thing that's been going on where a lot of people will now identify as Christian nationalists or identify as evangelicals. We ask you, self-identify as evangelicals, who don't go to church. The share of self-identified evangelicals who go to church less than once a year now is 40%. For the average evangelical, I think the word evangelical is a religious moniker. The average American today does not think that. They think that it is a political moniker, right? It denotes something politically about who you vote for, how you do things like guns and the Second Amendment. So now we get people who are saying, I'm an evangelical, but I never go to church. People go, you can't be that. I go, you absolutely can be that. And here's something even more wild about that. So can you be a Christian nationalist who's not a Christian? The answer is yes, you can be. Because the share of Americans who say they're evangelical but are Catholic has gone from 10% to 20% over the last 10 years. We're seeing a rise in evangelical Jews. We're also seeing a rise in evangelical Muslims. 50% of Muslims who go to mosque at least once a week and identify as Republicans also call themselves evangelical on surveys now. So they're grabbing on to this like idea of evangelicalism and white Christian nationalism as concepts they believe in because they like what it means, that it denotes something for them that they like, which is conservative, Trump, pro-gun, um, you know, theologically conservative and also socially conservative, gay marriage, transgender, things like that. I'm just going to stop and digest this for a moment. What you're saying is that the attachment to the identity of being white evangelical is not connected to uh, religiosity indicated by attendance at a house of worship, but rather cultural and political, that it's a religious, political, cultural label and identity Mm -hmm. in which membership is not contingent on, per se, doctrinal beliefs, Mm -hmm. but political beliefs. That's right. That's right. So think about yeah, so, but think about what evangelicalism is though. It's such a toxic term. Ryan, what do you? Yeah. can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so you know, in a highly polarized uh, political climate, um, religious terms take on political meaning. And for people who are Democrats or those on the left, when they hear the word evangelical, they're almost repulsed by it or, or pushed away by it. While people on the right are actually embracing the term evangelical more and more. So it's almost become a divisive term in the 21st century and really a way to divide people into, let's say, very religious or not religious at all. And it kind of has a lot more political and cultural connotations than it does theological or religious connotations now. Now I don't know what evangelical means. (laughs) Because if you're telling me that Muslims and Jews um, are also saying that they identify as this, I want to ask, how do they define this term? Has the term itself changed? I think it has. I did a debate a couple of weeks ago in Washington, D.C. about what an evangelical is in the 21st century. And I said, I think it's a cultural, political term now. It's not a theological or religious term at all. I think more people understand it in the cultural dimension. They understand it in the political dimension because of how ubiquitous it's become with the idea of republicanism and political conservatives in America. I mean, you hear it over and over and over again. Donald Trump needs the votes of evangelicals, especially white evangelicals, to drive him into the White House. I'll give you a stat. 
one third of all Trump voters in 2020 were evangelical Christians. One third. There's not a single religious group on the Democratic side that's even half the size as evangelicals were for Donald Trump. White evangelical Republicans are 13 percent of the American electorate. Nothing else even comes close to that now. 13 percent. So they are the tent pole of the Republican Party in America today. Everything sort of rotates around them on the right. I mean, Trump was not an evangelical. I kept trying to say he was. He wasn't. But he kept having to pander to the evangelicals because he realized how important they are to the vote, to winning the election. The Republicans have to kowtow to evangelicals in a way the Democrats don't really have that because they have many different coalitions that are smaller they have to kowtow to. So the word has become ubiquitous in American life. I think the average American didn't have heard the word evangelical 15 years ago. And now it seems like they hear it every day because it comes up in media stories and tweets and social media posts. So I think Part of it is the media is driving this narrative, which, you know, rightly or wrongly may be true or not, but it's also kind of deeply embedding in the American psyche of it's a political term. It's a cultural term. It's not a political term anymore. It sounds like it's not a religious term. No, I don't think it's a religious term at all anymore. Young people are four times more likely to say they're Christian than they're Protestant. They don't even know what the word Protestant means anymore. What I am hearing you say is a small percentage of the Americans who own the majority of guns identify as white evangelical, which is another way of identifying them as Republican. You got it. You pull the curtain back and what do you see? The GOP. And honestly, think about how hard is it to be like a hardcore gun lover and be a Democrat today? Like we call them cross pressures, right? So you're cross pressured. Let's say you are a member of a union, which makes you more liberal, but you're also a gun owner, which makes you more conservative. That's called being cross pressured, right? Because you got one thing pushing you one way and one thing pushing you the other way. We know that fewer and fewer Americans are cross pressured now than they were 10 or 15 years ago. They want to align their entire identity behind one thing. And for more and more people, that is a political identity. So now it's, I'm a Republican, but I don't go to church. But when someone asks me on a survey what I am, I'm not going to say I'm an atheist or agnostic. I'm going to say I'm a evangelical because that's what my people are. So we're seeing like this alignment of every aspect of your personality, your culture, your theology, your religion, your society, even where you live is falling behind this partisan lens because we want to become unified selves. And unfortunately, that's creating a more polarized society as we unify behind this single vision on one side or the other. You know, and as you describe the synthesizing of all those different data points to create a picture of what we're facing, faith leaders are now engaging in this discourse, increasingly talking about gun ownership as part of the conversation around security inside houses of worship. Are you surprised by that? Or is that something that has always been there? So clergy have always tried to speak prophetically about issues like this, right? To kind of get out ahead of things, help people think about things. Unfortunately, you get to the point where you realize your congregation is not following you, right? They're being discipled by someone else. And I hear pastors tell me this all the time. They go, why would I be political from the pulpit when I get in for 30 minutes every Sunday and they watch Tucker or Rachel Maddow an hour a night, five nights a week, Mm -hmm. right? So where are they being discipled more by what I see pastors doing, and I actually wrote a, a Wall Street Journal editorial that came out last weekend, where I argue that I think pastors are incredibly apolitical now because they don't see any value in being political. Because let's say I'm a pastor in an evangelical church, and I say, maybe we should think about red flag laws, which are not that controversial, by the way, or universal background checks, was 90% of Americans are in favor of. I say that from the pulpit. I'm going to make about 5% of my congregation really, really mad, but that 5% is going to be really, really loud and might be on the board and could fire me. 
right? So what I do is I pull back from that discussion and I just talk maybe more about violence or more about peace or more about morality or whatever it is. I don't talk directly about guns. And if I don't talk directly about guns, we know the vast majority of people in the pews only halfway pay attention to their pastor, if that. And it doesn't sink in deeply in their psyche on how to think about issues like this. So they're trying to be prophetic and God love them. They also don't want to get fired, right? So they're trying to couch it in language that kind of disguises it in such a way that it actually never gets to where it needs to go. And it doesn't actually change the minds of anyone else. So they're sort of being left to be discipled by partisan voices, not religious voices anymore. Ryan Burge, thank you so much for laying that out. It's not as simple as one would think. Nothing is as simple as one would think, but that's why I have a job. <laughs> and, and that's why we enjoy talking with you. Dr. Ryan Burge is an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. His academic focus is the interaction of religiosity and political behavior in American politics. As you can tell from my conversation with Ryan Burge, Guns and God is a complicated issue, something the news media reminds us of almost daily. That's why we've decided to dedicate next week's show to a full episode exploring this intersection. We're going to look at questions like what religious groups are most likely to own guns and where do they fit into what some call the culture of life? Our guests will include Kristen Kubis Dume, a historian and Christian who studies the culture of guns and masculinity in America. If you look at evangelical advice manuals on raising boys, uh, that involves things like little boys are, of course, even if, you know, you liberals are trying to prevent it, just watch your little boys going to make a gun out of a piece of bread, out of a stick. You know, you can't stop this. This is by God's design. And so you should give him BB guns when he's little. And then when he's old enough to handle it, you should teach him how to use real weapons, a rifle. We'll also hear from Michael Austin, a Christian philosopher and ethicist raised with guns, whose book, God, Guns in America, tries to answer the question, should a Christian own a gun? That's a deeply moral, ethical, and for Christians, religious question. You have to like reason through and think through, and if you have a religious faith, pray through, get advice about, not just, well, I want to protect my family, I'm going to carry a gun. It's not a flippant decision to be made like that. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about our guests this week, head over to the episode page at interfaithradio.org. And while you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcatcher of your choice. And if you have a smart speaker, just tell it to play the latest episode from Interfaith Voices. If you're subscribing to the podcast, can I ask you a favor? Will you leave us a rating and a review? It really helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. A special thanks to our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, I hope you are well. I hope you stay safe and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.